Our New Testament reading today is James 3, 13 through 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The word of the Lord. One Ancient Hope, it's, it's good to be with you this morning. And I think that scripture reading in particular shows us the importance of God's word, the word that calls us, and the word that gathers us. For that text presents us with two options, with life or with death. So let us come before the Lord as we prepare to look at his word so that we might seek, that we might desire, and that we might find life. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is, is life, that your word is life to us, that your word is life to a dying world. And we pray, Father, that as we look at this text in James, that you would give in us a desire, a love for life. Work it deep within us and help, it to, help us to express it in all that we do. And we ask these things, Lord, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and the power of your Spirit. Amen. So, in this passage, James speaks of what seems to be a contradiction in terms. He tells us of a wisdom that is dangerous. And perhaps as as readers, our first impulse is to ask, well, isn't wisdom an inherently good thing? What exactly does this mean? And what distinguishes this dangerous wisdom from the particular wisdom that James commends to us? These are big questions. These can be confusing questions. But but these are the very questions that James addresses in this particular passage. And in so doing, he actually presents us with two very different approaches to God, to ourselves, to our neighbors— to all of creation. Specifically, James presents us with two kinds of wisdom, the wisdom from below and the wisdom from above. So let's look at each of those in turn, beginning first with the wisdom from below. James three fourteen through 16 says the following, If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, But it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. 
So this seems strange to say, but there's actually a temptation and a danger that can come with wisdom. And this makes sense if we think about the book of Proverbs. If we're familiar with the book of Proverbs, what we find throughout the book is the constant refrain that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That wisdom begins in a relationship of loving reverence to God. In much of Proverbs, what we find, there are a series of of wise sayings. What we find are pieces of advice given by God who created the world. He's telling us how to live rightly, how to live effectively in the world that he's created. These are principles. They're not promises. They're not certainties, but they're generalities. They speak of the way that life typically goes, the way that life typically works. Look, for example, at Proverbs 13.3. We find the following. Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. He who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. And what we find here is a valuable piece of advice. We have advice given to us by God who created all things. In this case, we find the advice of being very careful what we say. And this is a good principle. If you are careful in what you say and how you say it, generally speaking, this will aid your relationships and it will aid the endeavors that you pursue. However, there's a temptation that comes with this because as our endeavors succeed, whatever they might be, there's a temptation actually to forget God and to forget that all we have is a gift and that we're called to steward all that we have as gifts. There's a temptation in succeeding by the very principles, by the very advice that Proverbs gives us. We can be tempted to think that we ourselves are the reasons we're doing so well in the world. We can look around at all we have and think that what we have has been provided by our own insight, by the sweat of our own brow. We forget that all that we have is a gift, and we start to think that everything that we have just is our due. It's what we're owed. And we come to forget that we're wholly dependent on God. Again, Proverbs gives us a number of pieces of sage advice telling us how life works best. But the danger is that we can come to instrumentalize this wisdom, that we seek this advice without the advisor, that we seek God's advice without God himself. And when we succeed by the advice given to us in Proverbs, we can be tempted to provoke tempted to forget that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, that wisdom finds its source in a right relation to God. Because wisdom is acting effectively in the contours of creation. Again, God knows how to do this because he created everything that exists. He knows how we are meant to live our lives. But as we succeed in those endeavors, we're tempted to pull away from God Wisdom can, be kind, can, uh, wisdom can become a kind of algorithm to get whatever we want. And when that happens, wisdom becomes cunning. Take, for example, the Hebrew word arum. So 
Interestingly, the word arum appears throughout the book of Proverbs. And if you have an ESV translation in Proverbs, arum is often translated as prudence. However, the word arum also appears in Genesis 3.1, which reads as follows. Now the serpent was more arum than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now, the, the ESV translates this as more crafty, but this is the same word that Proverbs translates as prudence. So what's happening here? What's going on? Well, to be sure, this is certainly an unspiritual wisdom. And this, in the most literal sense, is a demonic wisdom. This is the wisdom of the serpent, the wisdom of Satan. It's the wisdom of cunning. It's the wisdom that is without God, and it's a wisdom that's wholly instrumentalized. It's simply a tool for my own purposes rather than something that's meant to bring me closer to God. But not so the loving reverence of God that is the beginning of true wisdom. Because true wisdom begins in God, but it also ends in God. It finds its beginning in God, but it finds its aim, its purpose, its telos in God. It's meant to bring us to God. True wisdom seeks God as its greatest treasure. But this is not the way that demonic wisdom operates. And for that reason, it's a very unhappy wisdom. Augustine is very helpful here, and he helps us connect this to the human predicament in general. Augustine tells us that all people want happiness. This is absolutely inescapable. We do what we do, because we believe that what we do will make us happy. However, Augustine also tells us that we seek things that make us unhappy, that we seek the things that cannot make us happy. And so we are unhappy because we love and we seek the wrong things. And Augustine goes further. He says, a person is made unhappy just by having a bad will alone but much more so by the power to fulfill the, fill the desires of their bad will. So Augustine is saying that we're most unhappy when we both want bad things and we're able to get those bad things that we want. But what are these wrong things? Well, recall that James calls this kind of wisdom, wisdom without God. And he, goes, he calls it earthly wisdom wisdom. But does this mean that the things of earth are bad? Is he telling us to escape all of this physical stuff? Is he telling us to escape creation? No. Remember the earlier sermon that we had talked about the God being the good creator, who creates a good creation, and everything that God creates is good. So evil is not something created, but what it is, is loving something good in creation with the love that only God deserves. It's orienting our whole life around some created good rather than God himself. And we see this improper love manifested in the punishment of the serpent. We see the serpent's bodily state come to reflect his spiritual state. As we find in Genesis 3.14, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, and above all the beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So the serpent's punishment is to go on his belly. 
He's eating dust. He's unable to look upward. His eyes, his mouth, all of his senses are directed to the earth. And this reflects his cunning, his earthly wisdom. True wisdom is from God, and it leads us to God. It begins in loving communion with God and helps us to love and commune with God more deeply. But not so cunning. Again, this is a wisdom without God. It separates us from God. It begins and ends in creation. To be fallen, which all of us are, is to seek something in creation as our highest end. But to be cunning is to be fallen and to know exactly how to get that thing we wrongly seek. And this is earthly wisdom. And as Augustine tells us, to be cunning is to be in the most unhappy of states. To be sure, humanity ever since the fall has wanted wrongly. But we've never been more able to get what we want. Think about the serpent. So the serpent was really, really good at getting what he wrongly wanted. He wanted Adam and Eve to fall. He wanted Adam and Eve to rebel against God, and he knew exactly what to do to tempt them to make them fall. He was very, very cunning, and he's all the more miserable for it. But when we think about our own modern age, again, we've always wanted wrongly as human beings since the fall, but have we ever been more able to get the things we wrongly want? For ages, we've been tempted by entertainment, but never before have we been able to stream virtually limitless content on our phones or our computers. This is a far cry from the occasional theater performance in the center of town. For ages, we've been tempted by food and drink, but never have such things been available in such abundance. For ages, we've been tempted by misusing the good gift of sex within marriage, but never has pornographic material been so widely available. Even in the Roman Empire, where sexuality ran rampant, you still had to go to a public show. Now, all it takes is a simple swipe of our phones. We've long wanted wrongly, but never before have we been able to attain the things that we wrongly want with such ease and in such quantity. We might say that never before have we had such earthly wisdom. As C.S. Lewis writes in his Abolition of Man, For the wise men of old, the cardinal problem of human life was how to conform the soul to reality. And the solution was wisdom, self-discipline, and virtue. For the modern, the cardinal problem is how to conform reality to the wishes of man. And the solution is technique. Throughout this series, we've been talking about wisdom as living rightly before God with neighbors in creation. It's about being formed to God's good and gracious purposes for humanity. However, an earthly wisdom seeks exactly the opposite. An earthly wisdom seeks to form reality to our own wants, our own desires, our own wishes. An earthly wisdom doesn't need to pay any intention, attention to God's intentions for us. We let our own disordered loves be our compass, and we bend reality to our own will. Our own wants and desires become our greatest guide.
There just is no wisdom out there to which we must conform. There are only my desires, what I want, and how to fulfill them. As C.S. Lewis also writes in The Abolition of Man, when all that says it is good has been debunked, what says I want remains. So then when I speak of the good, I speak of the things that I want. When I call something good, it's just because I want it. I don't want it because it's good, but it's good because I want it. I don't need to conform to anything out there, but everything out there needs to conform to my own desires. And I make things conform to me by cunning, by earthly wisdom. So we shouldn't be surprised in 3.16 that James would characterize the earthly wisdom by disorder. And what we find here is the same root word in James 1.8. When James tells us that the person without faith is disordered, he is unstable in all of his ways. This person is like a wave tossed back and forth. And this is because earthly wisdom is going to anchor our life in something in creation, something that cannot fulfill the desires of our heart, nor give us the security and the support that we desperately seek. If we anchor our heart in money, if we use all of our earthly wisdom to attain money, we might go bankrupt. If we anchor our life in professional success, we very well might lose our job. If we anchor our life in beauty, well, beauty fades. If we anchor our life in notoriety, we will someday be forgotten. If we anchor our life in a series of new romances, eventually the novelty will wear off. If we put our ultimate trust, our faith, in anything in creation, we will be like a wave of the sea, tossed back and forth with the changing circumstances of life that hit us in a very unexpected way and our wants and desires, which, as we all know, not only change from year to year, but change from minute to minute. And most importantly of all, none of these things can protect us from death because death is that enemy that puts an end to any and all of our desires. Sociologist Peter Berger strikes a similar note as C.S. Lewis, and he talks about an assumption that characterizes modern societies. And he explains this assumption as follows. All human problems can be converted into technical problems. And if the te techniques to solve certain problems do not at yet exist, then they will have to be invented. To be sure, advances in medicine and technology help us as human beings to flourish. We should receive them gratefully. And we should understand them as more fully stewarding the good gifts that God has given to us and actually increasing our ability to love our neighbor. However, these advances can become technique. And when they become technique, they give us the illusion of independence, that we no longer need God that we only need ourselves and our own ingenuity. And so earthly wisdom, again, brings us away from God. And never before in human history have we perhaps had more earthly wisdom and have we perhaps been more tempted to think that we do not need God. But to be sure, 
Even then, not all problems can be solved by mere human technique. Again, we cannot escape death. Uh, Look at the example of Steve Jobs. So when Steve Jobs first founded Apple, uh, he had much, much enthusiasm for what he was doing, and people that were working there wore a t-shirt that said, 90 hours a week and, and loving it. So you have people working 90 hours a week. That's more than twice as much the regular American work week. But Jobs's fervor for technology is much muted in a 1996 interview with Wired. He says the following, We're born, we live for a brief instant, and we die. It's been happening for a long time. Technology is not changing it much, if at all. To be sure, Jobs achieved more than he ever imagined. He changed technology as we know it. He certainly had no lack of wealth or influence. He quite literally achieved everything that he wanted. But ironically, these words sound, something, sound like something directly out of the book of Ecclesiastes. We're born, we live for a brief instant, and we die. To the end of these words, we want to add, and this too is vanity, and this too is futility. So then, where does that leave us? Well, we find that the effect, the result of earthly wisdom is that we are unhappy. We've attained the things that we wrongly want. Two, we find ourselves wholly susceptible, wholly vulnerable to the changing circumstances of life. And three, we're still haunted by the certainty of death. So then what are we to do? And that brings us to our second and final point, the wisdom from above. Look with me at James 3.17 through 18. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make it. So James calls us to the wisdom from above, and he contrasts this with an earthly wisdom. The earthly wisdom finds its beginning and end in us, its beginning and end in creation. But James calls us to a wisdom from above that begins and ends in God. It's from above, but then it leads us to above. But what does this mean exactly? Well, James calls us to push more fully into the identity of wisdom. Where does this pattern come from in which things proceed from God and then find their purpose, find their end, find their telos in God? Remember that James is a kind of New Testament wisdom literature. The Old Testament wisdom literature is is always operating in the background of what James has to say. And perhaps the apex, the height of Old Testament wisdom literature is Proverbs 8, where wisdom itself is personified and it makes extravagant, extraordinary claims. Proverbs 8, 22 through 24 says the following, and this is wisdom speaking. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up, at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water. Now the word here that's translated as possessed might be better translated as as fathered. 
And if, you, if you've got an ESV, you might have a footnote that, that says as such. We could also translate it as begets, begot, as in wisdom is begotten by God. We also find that this begotting, this fathering, takes place before the beginning of the earth. It takes place in eternity. God begets wisdom in eternity. But there's more. We find also that the word, the wisdom, is directly involved in the creation of all things. Proverbs 8, 30 through 31. Then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and delighting in the children of man. We find that wisdom is also the master workman in whom God delights. And wisdom itself delights in God and delights in all the works of creation, especially those creatures known as humans. So what do we find here? Well, we find that wisdom is begotten by God. We find that everything that was created was made through wisdom. We find that God and wisdom delight in one another and that they both delight in creation. Therefore, we shouldn't be surprised that the Christian tradition, perhaps most notably the African bishop Athanasius, has directly connected Proverbs 8 with John 1. The opening verses of John read as follows. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Therefore, when we put these two passages together, we find a number of parallels. We find that both wisdom and the word are from the beginning. They're eternal. We find that all of creation was made through wisdom, that all of creation was made through the word. Even more, strangely, John 1 tells us that the word was distinct from God, but was God. So if we draw these passages together, we find out that wisdom is the word, but the word is God. Does this mean that there are two gods? Well, the Christian tradition has always affirmed that God is triune, that there's one God existing in three persons. So how does this help? Well, when we think of the divine persons, what we have are three personal ways of being God three personal ways of possessing the divine nature. To be the Son is to be God by receiving the divine nature from the Father, by being eternally begotten. To be the Son is to receive what we might call Godness from the Father. And this is actually really important for understanding wisdom because, again, all things were created through wisdom. Wisdom structures all that God creates. Wisdom provides the pattern for all of the created order, including us. And just as the Son is from the Father and turns to the Father in love, so we find this pattern in creation, as all of creation is from God and turns back to God in love. Augustine, on this note, says that we, by doing this, imitate the Son in whom we were made. As theologian Rowan Williams says, creation's relation to God is grounded in the Son's relation to the Father. As the Son is eternally from and to the Father, so all of creation is from and to God. 
this just is the pattern of divine wisdom that James calls us to. And it echoes the being of the word, of divine wisdom, of the Son. But James tells us more. He tells us that the wisdom to which he calls us results in making peace. It makes peace among us. It makes peace as neighbors. But we can go further. That is, how does it make peace? Well, it makes peace because of the peace made by the divine word. The same word, the same wisdom through whom we were created, became a creature. He became a human. John tells us that he became flesh and dwelt among us. He lived the perfect human life. And this should not surprise us because the from and to, the fatherness that patterns the, the being of the son, is the same pattern for the human life. He is the archetype of the human life. He lived the perfect human life because he's the mold that structures, structures all of the human life. And so we shouldn't be surprised that we find the same pattern in redemption. The Son is from and to the Father. And Christ was sent from the Father. But he was sent to bring us back to the Father. But he had to go very far from the Father indeed. On the cross, on the cross, Christ experiences a kind of desertion, a spiritual and internal suffering. He experiences an oppressive sense of God's wrath. And it's the wrath that we deserve for our sins. And so the one who has only ever felt the delight of God, now in his humanity, experiences the very wrath of God. He experiences the wrath that we deserve for our earthly wisdom, for our coming. Yet Christ also comes to the Father. His long journey is ultimately a journey of homecoming. He goes very far from the Father, descending to death itself, but he comes back to the Father. He's raised from the dead. And the risen Christ just is fully matured humanity. It's humanity in full communion with God. It's humanity free from corruption free from sin and death. It's humanity as humanity was always meant to be, fully freed from all of those problems that mere human technique can never fix. It's humanity fully from and to God. But what does this mean? Well, it means that the same one through whom we were created is also the same one through whom we are saved. So we should expect the same pattern with creation and salvation. To be a creature is to recognize that all that we have is a gift from God. To be a creature is to recognize that we did not create ourselves. To be a creature is to recognize that all that we have is from God. But this is also the pattern of salvation. In Christ, God freely offers you salvation. In Christ... He offers you a salvation that is not earned. He offers you a salvation that's merely received. Just as he created us by his own will, he offers you salvation by his own will and his own work. Because Christ lived in your place the perfect life and he suffered for you the punishment that you deserve. We cannot create ourselves and we cannot save ourselves. 
And if creation and salvation are one story, then this makes perfect sense. Creation tells us that everything that we have is a gift from God. Salvation confirms this. Creation and salvation are pure gifts. They are wholly the work of God. Creation is from God and to God. So too is salvation, because both rest upon the Son, who is from and to the Father. Salvation, then, is a kind of, of homecoming, but it's, it's a strange homecoming. G.K. Chesterton, at one point, speaks of a book that he would like to write, one in which a sailor makes a navigational mistake, and instead of ending up in some distant land, unbeknownst to him, he ends up in the very place from which he set out. He has returned home, but he does not know it. Everything is new, yet strangely familiar. Chester, Chesterton is actually envious of this man because he sees this man as escaping the problems that plague the modern age. Quote, How can we contrive to be at once astonished at the world and yet at home in it? We might say that this sailor has, for the first time, truly come home. He finally sees, he's finally open to all the wonder that's around him. Christ calls us to something similar. He calls us to receive salvation from God, just as we have received our creation from God. Christ does not call us to come out of the world, because everything in the world is patterned on Christ. The one who is from and to the Father gives the shape of all creation being from and to God. So to receive Christ is not to come out of the world, but to be situated rightly in the world for the first time. We and all of creation, everyone sitting here, was created to be from the Father and to the Father. And so the wisdom that's from above casts a new light on absolutely everything, on ourself, on our relations, our goals, our jobs, our finances, absolutely everything. Think of our most immediate homecoming. When we receive Christ, we still live in the same house. We still live in the same apartment. But perhaps for the first time, we realize the purpose of our house or apartment. We realize that our house is a gift from God and that it's meant to be directed back to God, that it's to be a place of love, of fellowship, of hospitality. Our house is from God and to God. It's not from us and to us. Our house is not meant to be something that isolates us from the world. It's not meant to be a set of walls that we hide behind. Our house is meant to be a place of welcome. It's a place where we bring in others, neighbors whom we love, and we direct them towards the love of God. I challenge you, perhaps even after this church service, to find someone and invite them over for a meal, for coffee, for something at your home this week. That helps us understand what the home is for and to use it in the right way. 
As Rosaria Butterfield writes in her book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, those who live out radical, ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs at all, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. Let God use your home, apartment, dorm room, front yard, community, gymnasium, or garden for the purpose of making strangers into neighbors and neighbors into family, because that is the point. Building the church and living like a family, the family of God, end quote. And this is really the point of all things. This is why divine wisdom not only brings peace between God and humans, but between humans and humans. It's the pattern of creation and that of salvation, of greatly receiving and stewarding the gifts that God has given to us. We are called to love God and neighbor. These just are the two great commandments. These are the two great aims of the human life. And everything we have is only working properly to the extent that we use those things to love God and to love neighbor. Only then can our house or anything else that God has given us make us bigger people, people who reach to God himself. Our only other option is to let us use our stuff to shrink us as we fail to use it for any purpose beyond our own wants, our own conveniences and comforts. Let us choose the bigness of wisdom from above, of imitating the very being of divine wisdom himself. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have sent your Son, Jesus Christ, that he is divine wisdom, that all that we have, Lord, is because of you is because of what you have done for us in the word. Help us to receive these things gladly, both our creation and our salvation. And Lord, help us desire, help us to seek to use everything that we have as the gift it is to love you and to love our neighbor, that there might be peace among everyone here in this place. And we ask these things, Lord, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and the power of your Spirit. Amen.